Hey there, this is Ben Currier, self-proclaimed world's number one failure. In this podcast, we'll learn about the hardest moments my guests faced and the failures they endured on their path towards making it. I hope you enjoy. Hey, it's Ben here, and in addition to this podcast, I also teach Microsoft Excel online. Visit ExcelExposure.com for more information and use the coupon code FAILURE for 20% off of the lifetime access to the course. Stay tuned after the episode for a little bit more information as to why it's so important to improve your Excel skills and unlock your inner Excel ninja. Thanks. Hey there, friends and felines of failure. This is Ben Currier here with this week's episode of the Failure Guy podcast, and I have a very special guest. Carol Baskin is here with me. Hey there, Carol. How are you doing? Hey, all you cool cats and kittens. You are fantastic. I just wanted to give you a chance because uh, since the podcast is about failure first to just give us some of the highlights of your life, like pump yourself up, give yourself some shameless brags or, you know, humble self-promotion. Tell us some of the the things you're most proud of before we get in more of the difficult times. Wow. Um, I really feel like our federal bill, the Big Cat Public Safety Act, is going to pass this year. I just got off of a call that I have with our lobbyists every week on this, and it's just, it's all coming together. And it culminates, gosh, 25 years or so of work in trying to ban the cub petting, which is most of the abuse that these cats suffer, and to phase out private ownership of the cats, the big cats. And I just I'm so thrilled with our team and with our volunteers and our supporters and everybody around the world who has had a shift in their mindset that these it's not okay to treat wild animals the way we have treated them in the past. So that's my my biggest claim to fame is to be able to ride this train through to the end of the ending platform. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So 25 years. How did you get started? What was the impetus to drive you towards getting this bill passed. And and I know a lot of it is about you're saying uh, when they're small cubs being handled by the public and private owners basically displaying them as trophies and things like that to make money, typically, I would imagine. But uh, how, how did that start? What was the process? What was the beginning of, of that 25 year long process? Well, I've actually been um, rescuing wild bobcats since I was 17. So that's like 40 some odd years ago, <laughs> but longer than that even. But um, in 1992 was when we rescued a bunch of cats from, well, a single cat from a, from a auction where she was mm-hmm. going to be killed by a taxidermist. And then in 93, we rescued 56 bobcats and lynx from a fur farm. And then the next year, 28, and the next year, 22. And then people started calling me and saying, would you take my lion? Would you take my tiger? And I was thinking, why on earth do people have lions and tigers in their backyards in America? This just seems crazy. And it was because there was this industry of people paying to have their picture made with a cute little cub. And they can only use that cub until it's about 12 to 16 weeks old, and then it can take a finger off of a child. So it goes from being a very lucrative photo prop to being a huge liability. A single tiger costs us over $10,000 per year per cat just in food and vet care, not any of the overhead of the sanctuary. These guys would just dump these animals into private hands and tell people, oh, you can raise it like a dog. And as long as you treat it like a family member, it's going to love you like your dog would. And they're lying to them. It's going to grow up to be a tiger. (laughs) Tigers don't, they don't suffer fools. Yeah. So um, by the time they're two or three years old, they're two or 300 pounds and people can't get rid of them fast enough. 
And so very quickly, I figured out we're never going to rescue our way out of this because they're breeding hundreds of these cubs every year. So we're going to have to change the laws. And we started trying to do that in 1998. We got part of it passed in 2003. And ever since 2003, we've tried to close down this one huge gaping loophole, which is the cub petting and the private ownership. Once that happens, all of these cats in private hands will die out of old age. Nobody ever keeps their cat usually past about four or five years old before they dump it on a sanctuary. So um, this whole problem goes away just in time for us to be able to save these cats in the wild. Because if we don't stop the cub petting now, we're going to lose the tiger in the wild in the next few years. Wow. Yeah, that's intense. And I saw all the pictures from when you were taking over Winnowood and all the, the specialty operations, I guess you'd call it, of basically poor operations that they were having to, you know, keep the, the parent cats away from their cubs and things like that. It seemed like they were, were setting it up for that kind of a um, situation. Is that, is that your understanding, I guess, from what you've seen after taking it over? Yeah. What these places look like are just if you can imagine a puppy mill where they're just constantly breeding, taking the puppies away and then immediately breeding the mothers back again for another litter. That's what they do with these lions and tigers and likers because they need new cubs every 12 to 16 weeks and they grow so fast that mm -hmm. it's just a, a speed breeding type facility. And so the cages keep getting either more and more overcrowded or separated into smaller and smaller jail cells to, to the point where it's just a miserable life for the animals. And they're basically useless to them once they're at a certain age, You're saying that because they could display them, but they can't really do much besides have it be a zoo-like atmosphere and they want to be more interactive with the with the people. I mean, falsely uh, for, for bad reasons, but that's the, the primary goal, or at least that's how they make most of their money, I would imagine. Well, there's only a handful that do it. And if you think about it, <clears throat> when you go to the zoo, they have two tigers, maybe four tigers at the most. Mm -hmm. You don't need 200 tigers to see tigers at a zoo. Yeah. But if you're breeding hundreds of them every year to use them only for a few weeks, then very quickly they can start to pile up on you. Wow. And so is, is there any kind of restrictions when you are approached and they're saying, hey, we have this tiger? Is there a process to make sure that you can actually take care of them? Are there a certain portion that you're unable to take just for various reasons or, or maybe capacity issues uh, on your end? Yeah, that was a problem back in 2003. In 2003, I had to turn away 312 big cats. In addition to all of them that we rescued, there was another 312 that we just couldn't take. And back then, all of the legitimate sanctuaries were just full and overflowing. And I remember when we would, any one of us would get a call about a lion or a tiger, we'd be calling everybody saying, have you got any space? If I give you money to build a cage, can you build a cage? <laughs> and there just was no place for these cats to go. But that's also the year that the uh, Captive Wildlife Safety Act passed, which was that middle part that I said that we passed in 2003. Mm -hmm. And so the number of cats we had been having to turn away had been doubling every other year. So we were looking at 2004 and thinking, oh my gosh, there's going to be like four or 500, maybe 600 cats that we have to turn away this year. And it dropped because of that bill and it dropped to like 160. And so that or maybe 165. But that was my wake up call to, OK, this is how we fix this. We just have to close this loophole and stop this breeding. And so as a result, now 
Um, most years, it's like anywhere from 15 to 30 cats that we get calls for. And because we are such a big network of accredited sanctuaries, there's plenty of room for the cats to go to now. Mm -hmm. So it's never a case where some cat ends up having to stay in a horrible situation. Well, that's good to hear. And hopefully the Big Cat Public Safety Act goes through. Uh, do, do you know when is there a time where that's going to be voted on or where there'd be a definitive decision? We were just discussing that on our call. <laughs> oh, nice. Well, trying to uh, set up the vote. Oh, that's that's fantastic. So that seems like the culmination of, of almost a lifetime of work. I know when you were a, a little girl, you loved uh, kittens and cats. Uh, what got you started? And I think there's a at least one or two original cats that you owned when you were just a child and then maybe blossomed from there? Yeah, the very first photos of me as an infant coming home from the hospital to my family, there's me and a cat in my cradle, literally. <laughs> and it wasn't until just recently that I pulled the picture of the cat out of the photo album, you know, they have this old style sticky ones were. I pulled it out and looked on the back and it said that the cat's name was Tiger. And I thought, well, wasn't that prophetic? <laughs> Yeah, I think I saw the picture with you and it says like, I forget what the words were, but it says uh, introducing you to the baby tiger. That's, that's fantastic. Uh, so before you can remember, you, you know, grew up with cats, it sounds like. Yeah. And then what, when did the bobcat stuff start happening? You said you were 17. So did you just happen to find one out in the, in the wild as you were walking around or what was the story? I left home at the age of 15. And because I spent so much time in veterinary clinics, whenever a bobcat gets hit by a car, you can imagine somebody sees some poor broken bobcat on the side of the road, takes it into the vet, the vet fixes them up in 30 minutes to an hour. But then you're talking months of rehab for that animal to get its strength back and for the bones to heal or whatever the issue was. And so the vets knew that I really loved cats and I was not at all um, if you've ever dealt with feral cats, they're just mm -hmm. like, you know, absolutely freaking crazy. And I love feral cats. My two cats at home are both feral. I can't even touch one of them. She's so wild. And I like that because I don't like to be touched. They don't like to be touched. But anyway, the vets knew that I would take good care of those cats and then release them. And so that's what I started doing when I was 17 was anytime a bobcat needed some time to heal, I would take it out to my place. I lived out in the country. I had caging out there because I had had purebred cats. And so I had the ability to take care of them until I could actually set them free. But the only cats that are legal to set free are the ones who were actually born in the wild. So those are the only cats I've ever been able to rehab and actually release are the bobcats that I've done that and still do it today. We have, I think, six cats in rehab right now. Oh, wow, that's so cool. Yeah, I've, I remember one time I hit a red-tailed hawk mm. and it was still alive. And we, had to, we drove like an hour and a half to the nearest hawk sanctuary. Unfortunately, he only uh, survived for 11 days. But I remember just the feeling of helplessness when you're, you know, in an accident like that, you can't do anything. You don't know who to call. We brought him to the fire station first and then they directed us. So it's nice to to have services out there. You said you left home at 15 years old. Was that of your own accord? I mean, was that against your parents' wishes or was this, you know, plan to go down the veterinary lifestyle or however you got into that field? There were a lot of things that had been going on, but one thing in particular was that I have just felt this burning desire to protect domestic cats and kittens from being killed in shelters due to overpopulation. And I felt like at the time, I mean, this was back in the 70s, 
there were millions of cats being killed in shelters every year. That number has dropped considerably due to aggressive spay and neuter programs all across the country. But back then it was horrible and it was getting more horrible all the time. And I was aware of this and felt like that was my calling and what I wanted to do. And so I was pestering my father to let me go to work because I knew I needed to raise a lot of money for this. And of course, he wanted me to stay in school and get a good education. And my mother and I had been like best friends for the whole time I was growing up as a kid, she was the cool mom, you know, she would have parties at our house and all the kids would come over and we had bands and we had just, she was like, mm -hmm. she was amazing. And she's still with me. She's still amazing. Oh, great. But we never, ever throughout all of my teenage years, we never had the first argument. We never had any kind of harshness between us. And on this one particular morning, we had a fight. And at the end of the fight, she was so shocked by it. I was so shocked by it. And she said, when I get home, I don't want to see your face. Well, she meant, I mean, like, you know, stay in your room. I'm really just mm -hmm. done with you. <laughs> and I thought she meant ever. So I left home and I stayed gone for months before they found me. And when they found me by that time, I was so accustomed to taking care of myself and living on my own that I just couldn't move back home. But we still have a great relationship. She's She and my father both worked here at the sanctuary with me from the 90s up until the time that he died in 2016. He was working right up until the last week of his life. And she just retired in 2018 or 2019. Oh, wow, that's impressive. Uh, yeah, I've heard about the not only the Spain neuter programs being very successful, but when they started the no kill shelters, that became a lot of uh, place. I think it started in San Francisco. I forget the guy's name. I believe it was mentioned mm -hmm. on a podcast I was listening to recently. But then they had the problem of having too many cats in shelters. And so then they started doing fostering, I believe, if my memory is correct. But it sounds like you were kind of at the forefront of a lot of this stuff just by, well, that argument you had with your mom, but also just because you were so passionate about about cats and and saving wild animals. Is there any reason you think it's specific to cats or does it go beyond that to other types of animals? Or do you really stay in the bobcat, tiger, you know, big cat or small cat zone? <laughs> I strive toward veganism because I don't want to um, have a heavy footprint on this earth. I don't want to cause harm where mm -hmm. I don't have to. And so my cats have to eat meat, but I don't have to. And so I've been a vegetarian since I think like 1990 something, 99 maybe. Oh, wow. um, and I really try to be a vegan, but I, I eat butter. I, mm -hmm. I get butter from Ireland because the cows get to live in the pasture, but you know, it's still it's butter and they're still having to be milk. So I'm working my way toward veganism, but I don't have that same strong push to save every animal. My push has always been cats of any kind. And the wild cats were just a diversion from what I really wanted to do with my life. And I thought stupidly, talk about your failures. I thought I could fix this like that. Like how hard could it be? We just get these cats out of the fur farm and we put them in pet homes and all is going to be good. And then what happened is all those cats started coming back because nobody was willing to take care of those cats until they were until they died of old age and they couldn't be released because they had been born in captivity. Mm -hmm. And so <laughs> I, I figured out pretty quickly that I was going to have to take care of all of those animals until the day they died. And then once I discovered all of these big cats, lions and tigers and likers being dumped, I thought, well, surely I can fix that. Nobody should have lions or tigers in their backyards and basements. And it's turned out to be 20 some odd years of trying to get this bill passed. So 
I think it's going to pass this year. <laughs> and then I can actually start getting back to what I really wanted to do, which is domestic cat rescue. Okay. So this is just more than you bit off a little more than you could chew at the time. <laughs> and now you're still uh, going through it, but it seems like amazing stuff. Uh, so you're saying you'd prefer your dream would be to deal with domestic cats, house cats, smaller ones. Is that what you're saying? If, if everything, you know, with the big uh, cat public safety act and everything goes through and you feel like you've done your job and done the best you can do, would you pivot and maybe do more of the, uh, the, the little guys, I guess, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when you say, is it your dream? I don't, you know, none of this is my dream. And I think an awful <laughs> lot of people who work around wild animals do it because they want to be around the wild animals. And that's not why I'm doing this. I'm doing this because these animals don't belong in cages. And it's the same with the domestic cat problem. Even though I love cats, it's not because I want to be surrounded by cats that I'm doing this. It's because I don't want to see cats being killed in shelters and due to something we can fix, which is getting them neutered and spayed. And so, you know, whether you could say it's my dream or where it's like, I just feel like I came here for this particular mission and I need to get it done. And I may die before I get that done with domestic cats. So I'm just going to have to keep coming back again and again until I do. Well, I mean, without people like you, we wouldn't even know how big the problem is. Cause just like you were saying, you thought it would be a pretty quick fix. And that, and just like I thought before, you know, Tiger King came out or any of that stuff. I didn't know how frequent people had wild tigers and lions and bears and all that stuff. <laughs> At their at their houses, it was it was mind blowing to me that people would be actually purchasing these animals, even on a small scale. Not even you know just for like a an exhibit type of a thing. It's it's just crazy to to think of of that being a a logical decision to make. <laughs> but I guess some people can convince themselves. I mean, they are super cute, of course. So I imagine seeing things like that or going to places where they have them might might uh, trigger something in somebody to want to own one, but. I just can't imagine that it would be that pervasive. And so I'm sure just like you, you were surprised to see just the vast number of animals that you wouldn't expect to be even in the US at all, uh, let alone being in cages or in some sort of random situation. So what part of the world do you live in? Oh, so that's a great question. I grew up in Salem, Massachusetts, the witch city. And then I moved to, I stayed there till I was about 27, then lived in Colorado. And right now I'm in Kansas city. So um, not too far away from imagine it wouldn't take that long to get to Winwood. <laughs> I'm not sure how long the trip was for you from Florida, but yeah. So for me, like in Massachusetts, which is a pretty democratic state there, there's not even places you can go buy a gun around. So I wouldn't, <laughs> I don't see more of the, uh, the country type of living stuff until I'd moved out to here. And it's just, it's amazing. And I, I imagine you need such a large estate or property back in Boston, it was a dream to even own a house at some point in my life. So uh, having a place big enough to have tigers, uh, that would be something that would be uh, just out of my realm of imagination. So I'm curious, like when you finally realized how big the problem was, how did you scale your operations to, to deal with that many wild cats? Actually, it's shocking how many cats are kept on such postage stamp size parcels like the Winniewood um, facility, they claimed at one time to have 400 tigers and 1200 animals. And it was on 14 acres, 14 acres. It's like 400. <laughs> how do you have that many animals on that little tiny piece of property? And then there's uh, Mario Tabro from Tiger King. He's down in Miami, Florida on five acres and he's got 57 lions 
and all kinds of primates and all kinds of other animals there on five acres. How does anybody, they've got to be crammed in just like tiny little jail cells next to each other to be that many animals on a piece of property. And Big Cat is 67 acres. Oh, 67 acres. Okay. I was curious how in the wild, how much space they need to, to roam and feel, you know, I don't know how much territory they would cover, but I can imagine just one tiger could probably handle 14 acres of space in terms of running around and stuff like that. You said you have 67 acres. Did that grow? But even that is not sufficient for a big cat because tigers can roam 400 square miles of territory. And oh wow! I had a bobcat in rehab recently. She had gotten hit by a car twice or maybe three times. And so this poor thing was so broken. She had so many broken bones and the vet had pinned her all back together. She had to spend a lot of time in cage rest, you know, where she can't move around. And then when she was finally well enough that we put her out into our rehab cages, which are 5,000 square feet, and this is compared, and this is a 20 pound cat. So mm-hmm. the cages at the GW Zoo for tigers were about 100 to 200 square feet. And this is 5,000 square feet for a 20 pound cat. But anyway, I put her out there and she, there were cameras on it because we don't want to imprint on them at all. Mm-hmm. And I watched her on her first night being outside. So she's just starting to heal. She traveled 16 miles in a single night, a 20 pound cat. So there's no cage any of us are ever going to give them that's going to be sufficient. Gotcha. So no matter what, it seems like they're they're being limited, even in the best case scenarios. Well, that's, that's insane. I mean, in, in like, an impressive way that they can cover so much space and yeah and need that much space one thing i was always curious about you specifically is it seems like you're really comfortable sharing a lot of your personal life like with the diaries and everything like that you know just sharing your feelings sharing your emotions is that something you developed over time or was it something that was always kind of came naturally to you i imagine it didn't but who knows yeah i'm a very quiet private person i prefer to be by myself i thought covid was going to be the best thing ever because i could (laughs) stay home um, and never have to deal with anybody Mm -hmm. and instead tiger king and all of that craziness and then all of these people that saw that that believed that i knew something more than what i knew and so what i decided to do was say look i've been keeping a diary because i talk to myself because i don't talk to anybody else i've been talking to myself my whole life i've got it all written down so if you guys have any concern about what i know about this here it is you can see every stupid thought i ever had in my life and so that's been a real um, challenge as i read those and i just as i'm reading that and to the camera, I'm just like, oh, my God, I was so stupid. Or people are just going to really take this the wrong way. But, it, you know, I promised that I would share it exactly like it was. And so I have. And there's only been about, I think, 15,000 people or so that have subscribed to it compared to 64 million people seeing Tiger King and being misled by that. Mm-hmm. So it's not done a very good job of convincing people of who I really am and what I really know. Absolutely. First of all, I just want to say that's amazing that you actually went through and did all that because it's not easy to share your personal stuff. I imagine some of it was almost like time travel messages from your past self to your current self. And you had some realizations about maybe earlier things. I know when I go and read my old notebooks, even just to myself, I realized some things, either good ideas I had or terrible ideas that I had as, as I'm reading through them. They seem like such great ideas at the time. (laughs) (laughs) I know it is. Is there something that stands out? So first of all, do you view Tiger King as a, as a mistake 
I know that you didn't have a lot of control over what was said or what was or what's happening, but do you think ultimately it brought more eyeballs and people to the issue and actually brought it to the forefront? Or do you think it made it harder for you to do some of the things you had to do? Yeah, I wasn't sure how that was going to be because it, you know, when we were working with the producers for the five years leading up to it, they said that it was going to be the equivalent of blackfish for big cats, that they were going to show all of this abuse and people would see how horrible it was to be doing this cub petting. And we thought, this is great. We would welcome them in anytime they wanted to come film because that's exactly what we needed people to know about. Mm -hmm. And that's not the message people got from Tiger King. So after we watched it, my husband and I first just turned to each other and said, well, that was a missed opportunity. And we had no idea that the public would take it the way they did or that they would believe a bunch of animal abusers in the lies that they were telling about me. And so it became just months of, you know, being constantly screamed at by people who thought that I killed my husband and that I had uh, been a homewrecker and a gold digger and all kinds of crazy stuff. And so that part was really difficult. But I do think what you said earlier was so important that there were people all around the world that didn't even know that this existed. They didn't know mm -hmm. that there was a problem at all. And so I don't think Tiger King did a good job of raising that awareness, but I think because there was so many people that just, um, and the press was just wretched in that they were just constantly hammering on me so that it gave me that opportunity to respond in much larger audiences than I ever could before. Not only about that, which wasn't important. What is important is the fact that we're going to lose the tiger in the next five years if we don't stop this cub petting. Mm -hmm. And so it gave me the opportunity to turn those lemons into lemonade. And that's even after going through the process of all the, the death threats and everything that led up to Tiger King. So like, for example, we'll put Joe Exotic in jail. How, how was it living through essentially getting your life threatened constantly? It sounded like, or at least uh, you had definitely had an internet feud or whatever you'd call it back in the day, but where he would just be ruthless. That was even before it all came out. So I imagine it just extended that period of, of feeling that you were being misheard and, and that people were not understanding the actual Carol Baskin. Well, the, the people who watched Tiger King were only aware of the two murder for hire charges. What they did not get to see because it wasn't in Tiger King were the decades of those threats, not only by him, but several of these other people that are in that industry. Mm -hmm. And so my life has been threatened many times. In fact, today, a woman contacted me who said that she's been getting death threats and she wanted to know how, how I deal with it. And I said, well, you can't count on the, the authorities or law enforcement to help you because I reported all of those. The people who came to me and said Joe had tried to pay them to kill me or when I was physically attacked, when I would go to speak at the Florida Wildlife Commission hearings, when I would turn that into the police, they would do nothing about it. And it wasn't until they stumbled upon this whole murder for hire thing during an, a lemur investigation that they paid any attention to it. And it's like, yeah, I've been telling you guys this for years that these people are trying to kill me and they just did not pay any attention to it. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's been frustrating. So how did you deal with the psychological toll? Is it, is it just getting used to <laughs> the fact that a lot of people seem to dislike you? Or I mean, cause decades sounds like it'd be very difficult, especially for someone who likes to be a private person to have, people publicly say that they, you know, are either wished you were dead or, or, you know, actually threatening your life. How did you, how'd you deal with that? 
In my email, I actually have a Franklin Roosevelt quote that says, judge me by the enemies I have made. So I have worn that like a badge of honor. And I feel like if you aren't getting death threats, you're probably not making a difference. <laughs> so I have uh, taken the position and I told this woman who was asking me about it today, I said, whatever you do, do not let these bullies silence you because that's been working for years, but they're never going to silence me. And even if they do kill me, like I said before, I'll just keep coming back. So I'm not going to stop until we end this abuse. That reminds me of a quote from a song that I like. It says, uh, may my enemies live long so they can see me progress. So, <laughs> you know, you you basically uh, take on the the effect of, of trying to make sure that they get to see you succeed and you know maybe you'll piss them off a little bit more in the process which might give you a little a little bit of a boost because there's not much you can do to to someone who's going to be that cruel to not only human but you know the animals themselves as well but i can only imagine just how difficult it is because i can't put myself in that position i guess i got to make more enemies to your point and <laughs> or do more important things oh, keep podcasting <laughs> you'll get there <laughs> oh i'm sure uh, I want to pivot to uh, just a couple last questions that I have, but before I get there, I didn't know if there's anything else on the subject of failure or any messages you want to get out or anything just on the topic uh, before we go to something that's a little bit more forward looking, which is the, the last couple of questions. Uh no, I really don't dwell on failure. And I really only feel like the only big failure in my life was years ago, a lot of our cats die from, well, they still, a lot of our cats die from cancer. And our vet said it's because they eat meat and there's so many hormones and antibiotics and stuff like that in our meat that you shouldn't be eating it, but the cats have no other choice. And so I decided I was going to grow all organic chickens and we created just big, huge fields of where the chickens could run loose and they could be in the grass and it was going to be wonderful. And turns out if you're not pumping them full of hormones and antibiotics, then you end up with a bird that doesn't look anything like the chickens people eat. It's a very healthy, lean, mostly feathers <laughs> bird, which is not nutritional for the cats. Mm -hmm. So everybody, whenever I come up with a new idea, my staff, my volunteers always say, remember the chickens. <laughs> because that was a really bad idea. <laughs> Huge failure. But it sounds like a good idea. I mean, I would have thought the same thing. So, you know, I, I certainly don't fault you for it. Being a guest on the show, you get what I call a get out of fail free card, which is similar to the Monopoly card, but it, it lets you pursue a hobby or a passion or a career or something. I saw you run Dancing with the Stars, which is something I wouldn't, I would definitely use that, that card for if I was in that position. But uh, is there something you'd use to get out of fail free card if you could pursue something that you've avoided because of the amount of failure that would be involved or just the fact that you were distracted with all the things that you didn't realize how long this would take? Is there, is there another thing you wish you could do in life that's separate and if there wasn't so much failure like for example stand-up comedy i think to me would be awesome but the fact that you have to go bomb on stage <laughs> is difficult so i it's hard for me to pursue that is there anything if you had to get out of fail free card that you'd use it for uh, to pursue something that you might have otherwise avoided well it sounds like if if i could um be guaranteed not to fail what would i do mm -hmm. and if that's what you're saying yes and i would learn to code i think coding is it's just the bomb. It is a way to create out of nothingness. And I would love to do that. That's awesome. I saw you were getting into the NFTs a little bit. At least I saw you in some NFT rooms on Clubhouse. Is that just out of pure interest, similar to the coding and programming? Or are you doing anything in that space? 
It's actually a stepping point to my future. So I think the only way that we ultimately save the cats in the wild is to monetize them where they live. And so my my vision is a world where all cats are in living free. There are none in zoos, none in cages. And that the only way anybody ever gets to see them is through live streaming video into your headset or onto your phone from cameras where those cats live. And then I see that as being monetized through smart contracts on the blockchain so that you're paying a fee to see those images, but all of the money, or at least the lion's share of that money, is going back into the pockets, into the crypto wallets of the people who actually live in those regions around those cats, because then they have a reason to protect those animals and the environment. That's the only way we're ever going to have people protect the environment is for it to be worthwhile to them and be their source of income. And since all of us want to see these amazing animals and we want to see them living their best lives, then I think that's the way to do it. And so everything that I'm doing in the NFT and cryptocurrency space and augmented reality and virtual reality, all of it are stepping stones toward that end. Very cool. Well, the next question I was going to ask is what's the next big thing you're going to fail at? And I don't know if you'd consider that to be it, but I think it's super interesting that it sounds like you're right. If we're going to save these cats and want to actually have people be able to interact with them in any way, virtual seems like the way to do it because safe for the cats. You don't get any of the the human interaction components that are uh, detrimental to them. At least you have much more safer um, environments and they can be more free via the streaming stuff. So I think that sounds great, but would you, and by fail at next, I mean, fail it till you nail it kind of a thing is, is what I like to say instead of fake it till you make it. So uh, what would be uh, the next thing that you, you're going to try to do that's uh, that you're not so sure is going to work out? Well, I love fail it till you nail it. That's hilarious. <laughs> and that probably is it. That's going to be a lot of missteps along the way, I'm sure, trying to figure out the best way to make that happen. What part of it are you most excited about? I'm most excited about the end result, which is a healthy planet. I don't think you can get people excited about saving trees or saving forests or saving the oceans or anything else, but you can get them excited about saving a tiger or saving a whale. Mm -hmm. If you personalize it and people get to know that animal individually because it's an animal they visit on their camera all the time or they check in on their phone every day to see how that animal's doing, then they have a vested interest in making sure that that environment that that animal lives in is healthy. And that's the only way any of us are going to survive this planet. I love it. And I love your Instagram. I love seeing all the, all the wonderful pictures of the cats that you have there. And I think, you know, that type of interaction is great. Where would you send people to find you these days? What, where can they go to support you? Where would you tell people to go if they want to be either getting involved or just helping in general with, with your causes? If they're in the U.S., I would love it if they would go to cubtruth.com. That'll teach them what's happening with these cubs. And at the end of it, there's the opportunity to actually take action for them by sending an email or a tweet or making a call to a member of Congress. We make that really easy for them. And then we are on all of the social planets, planets social platforms mm -hmm. as Big Cat Rescue. Okay, great. Well, I'll make sure to put that into the show notes. And I just wanted to thank you so much for joining and being vulnerable and talking about all of these things. I know sometimes failure or mistakes aren't easy to talk about, but it seems like you've uh, gotten accustomed to it over time and, <laughs> and just wanted to thank you so much for joining. Thank you, Ben. All right. Take it easy. Goodbye. Would you like to be more efficient, productive, and confident in your work at the office? Over 750 million people worldwide use Excel. 
yet it's still a misunderstood and frequently misused tool. That's why I created Excel Exposure, so you can work smarter and not harder. The Excel Essentials course gives you over 5 hours of in-depth video lessons, plus it comes along with my master workbook which has every function, shortcut, and all the examples to follow along. Investopedia actually included my course in their list of 6 best online Excel classes of 2021, saying it's best for visual learners. As someone who's an expert in failure, I can certainly teach you and your team how to avoid spreadsheet failures and create bulletproof Excel documents. Use the coupon code FAILURE for 20% off of the lifetime access price. Visit ExcelExposure.com for more information and also my existing award-winning free training. Thanks for joining me on the Failure Guy podcast. If you enjoyed it, feel free to tell somebody. And don't forget, always try to fail it till you nail it. Till next time.